Hi, welcome to Design with Purpose, a show created by designers for anyone seeking guidance in the complex world of design. Hosted by myself, Dina Duffick, and my co-host, Colton Bryant, the goal of our show is to explore the ins and outs of interior design through personal experience, credible research, and professional guests. Here you will learn about the current trends and history behind certain design styles, as well as the psychology of well-designed spaces. Thanks for listening to Design with Purpose. Be sure to add us to your library and follow us on Instagram at designwith.purpose. In 2005, after nearly 10 years as the managing associate for Mark Singer Architects in Laguna Beach, Anders Lasseter opened the doors to his own firm and has continued his focus on innovative designs for not only residential projects, but also restaurant, retail, and hotel projects. Anders holds a Master's of Architecture degree from UCLA and a Bachelor of Architecture degree from Cal Poly Pomona. He is a licensed architect in the states of California, Nevada, Texas, Colorado, Hawaii, and a certified green building professional. In his free time, you might find Anders working out together with his wife or two sons, or actively working on visiting all 50 states. However, having been born and raised here in Southern California, it remains his favorite state to date. Uh, today we have Anders Lasseter with us, and not only is Anders a colleague, but he's also a friend. I think he's the funniest architect that I work with. You forgot best looking, let's <laughs> be honest, come on now. <laughs> Thank you for being with us today, we really appreciate it. I was happy to come, thanks for the invitation. So, as a longtime admirer of your work, before we work together, there's many things I could say about you and your work that we admired as designers. We work with a lot of architects. We enjoy that process a lot, working with architects, some more than others. Hmm. One of the things that we really admire about you and your team is not only your design aesthetic, but you're also extremely organized, professional, really buttoned up. Oh, thanks. And we really value that. Yeah. Um, it's nice to kind of be able to field balls with somebody yeah. and share ideas. It's interesting that you bring that up because we were chatting before the record button got hit and we talked a little bit about the notion that it's one thing to be a good designer and good design is everything that we need in our built environment. But if you're a good designer, but you can't also be a good business person, if you can't run your service organization and get your designs built and brought to the people you're designing for, then your ability to design means nothing. So we really need to be good business people first so that we can assure that the work that we're passionate about actually gets a chance to be birthed and to give people an opportunity to live in and experience the built environment as we want it to be for them. You couldn't have said that better. I couldn't agree more. Not only do you have to be a good business person, but I have found that, especially in our business, that it's, I joke with clients and say, well, I'm your designer, but I'm also your marriage and family therapist. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's funny too, because I do speak with a lot of students in architecture and design, and I talk about how learning to be an architect in school is really important because you want to learn how to, to design quickly and have a facility at understanding big ideas and wrangling them to the ground as fast as you can, because you'll have very little time in the profession to actually spend designing. The rest of your time is going to be spent babysitting, babysitting all of the other people that are involved in delivering a project. It's complicated to build a building. There's a lot of people that get involved and they can be helpers or maybe not by intent. They can be those that hurt. 
the intent of the uh, designer. So we really have to become very skilled at navigating personalities and trying to figure out how to bring out the best in all of the other players who have a great amount of influence over the delivery of the baby that we've conceived, right? There's a, a whole team that goes into these things and there could be any number of things that go wrong along that path. So our job is to play goalie and protect that goal of delivering a great building for not only our clients, but the other people that use it and to leave a legacy. These buildings are going to last mm -hmm. a good long time, right? We want something that doesn't look like it was a mistake mm -hmm. in 10, 15, 20 years. That's one of the things I admire about your work is that you're passionate about it and you really understand the stakes. I think that there's so many people that design things without thinking through, you know, this is going to leave a lasting mark. And I love the work that you're doing with students. I want to touch on that a little bit more, but just to give us a little bit more background about you, I mean, your your bio, of course, is impressive, but at what stage in your life, where did that creative spark begin? Like, when did you yeah. know, like, I think I want to be an architect? When did it start? Sure. I think I could trace the exact moment that I realized architecture was something that really moved me to seventh grade woodshop back in uh, junior high. We called it junior high back then, not, and middle school is what my kids call it now. But in junior high, we had woodshop class. And the first part of woodshop class was learning some basic mechanical drawing. Here's a T-square, here's a 45-degree triangle, here's a compass, let's draw a circle. Now take that circle that's on your paper and let's go over to the machine and cut that circle out of a piece of wood. Now let's do that three more times and turn those four circles into the wheels of a little truck. Now let's make this truck a planter that you could put a potted plant in and give to your mother on Mother's Day, right? There was a, an intent and a step-by-step -step process that led from nothing being on the paper to circles being on the paper to circles being cut out to assembly, and then ultimately that moment of giving that truck planter to my mother for Mother's Day and seeing the look on her face of pure joy. And I thought, wow, that's incredibly powerful. I can conceive of something that wasn't there before, bring it into being by drawing it, by building it, and by giving it to someone else. And to see that joy come from her was completely addictive. And I really like that idea that I can modify the built world with my powers. Mm -hmm. And so that was a moment of pure clarity that that's what I want to do. I want to create. Mm -hmm. You know, I built with blocks and Legos mm -hmm. before then, and it was either become an architect or become a rock and roll drummer, which was my other you know, great passion. And maybe one day I'll be able to do that too. I thankfully still have some hair on my head. And if I grow it out a little longer, it would be totally appropriate for rock and roll. But the act of making, whether it be music or architecture or a planter and woodshop, the fundamental notion that you could put something on the earth that wasn't there before was amazing. Mm-hmm. No, I, we talked about this in an, another podcast episode, but they say, you know, by the time you're five or six, you already know what you're supposed to be doing because it's very clear in your habits and in your development. Yeah. And I remember at that age, I was also playing with Lincoln Logs and Tinker mm -hmm. Toys and mm -hmm. Legos and building and drawing and also realized really young that, oh, I can draw this or paint this or build this and this becomes something for someone, there was that instant gratification of, okay, this feels, it, it almost, for me, resonated, sound like with you as well, but just something that was resonating with my soul. Yeah. Like, this is something for me. When you can use your body to make something that wasn't there before, to change mm -hmm. the environment around you in some way, 
it is very, very intoxicating, mm-hmm. and you want to do it over and over and over again. Any creator of any kind, whether they be a musician, an artist, a sculptor, a painter, an architect, an interior designer, anybody who creates something, they understand that feeling, and it is incredibly addictive. It's the greatest drug on the planet, you know? It really is. Mm-hmm. And thank God for music and drumming. It got me through high school without, you know, overdosing or doing anything <laughs> stupid because it was such a better drug mm-hmm, than any of the mm-hmm. others out there. Just mm-hmm. making is incredibly rewarding. Yes, I couldn't agree more. So the evolution of your architectural background. So, okay, so you knew at an early age what you were doing. How did you kind of find your way through school and then into working for a very renowned architect here in Laguna. Yeah. If I look back on it, I'd have to say I've been lucky. I know that luck is often found at the intersection of, you know, opportunity and hard work and just Mm -hmm. paying attention. And so I think being aware and elevating my thoughts about what I wanted to do and what would likely get me to where I wanted to be allowed me to see opportunities along the way. And so I've been very fortunate through my education and my career that there were people who took interest in me, who gave me opportunities and allowed me to flex my muscle and show what I was capable of, both in succeeding and failing and getting back up again and taking it to the next step. And so mentorship has really been an important part of my success, having people who cared enough about me to give me those opportunities. But it also came with a lot of hard work. I mean, I graduated high school in 1987 and spent four years at a junior college, you know, sort of flopping around, Mm -hmm. doing some general ed stuff, taking some of the architecture classes. And after those four years, I realized, you know, I guess I better decide that I'm going to do something. So I went to Cal Poly Pomona and spent another four years to get my undergraduate degree. And that really crystallized for me what I was doing and why. So I decided, I love this so much, maybe I even want to teach this to other people. And I went and got a graduate degree, a master's of architecture at UCLA, with the intent that I would maybe teach and practice part-time. As I was finishing that master's, I was very fortunate to get a job with Mark Singer here in Laguna Beach. Mark was looking for somebody that had some talent, some ambition, and we fit together really well. We just really complimented one another. And I think he saw in me somebody that he could use to further what he was looking to do. And I saw in him somebody I could use to further what I was looking to do. And we had a very good relationship for a long time. And it just grew to the point where I realized, okay, I've run the course here. It's time for me to step out and start my own firm. And I was completely scared to do that. In fact, it was the 30th or the 30, is there 31 days in March? I can't remember. Yes, I think there are. So March 31st, was my last day at Mark's office, which meant that the next day, which was a Saturday, was April Fool's Day. (laughs) And I woke up that morning feeling like an absolute fool. What had I just done? I just left a great job working for a great architect doing some great projects in Laguna Beach. What the hell was I thinking? But by 10 o'clock that morning, I had gotten over my little pity party and started contacting the people that I knew and the clients and friends that I had met. And everybody said, geez, what took you so long? We always were waiting. You know, why did you not do this sooner? But anyway, here, here's a project. And within very little time, I was on my own doing very well and was fortunate to have had along the way a group of people and consultants and colleagues and friends who cared enough about me to want to work with me after I left Mark's office, and that was really the explosion that I needed to propel that forward. 
I love that. And I love that you mentioned having mentors and how important that's been in your life. I agree. It has been for me as well. And one thing that I've noticed with you that I really appreciate is that you're a really good teacher, not only in the design process as we work with clients, explaining it to clients, explaining architecture and design, explaining it. I watch you do it with your staff. I watch Mm. you do it with our design team. I watch you do it with our clients. Not everybody can do that. You can have a skill and know what you're doing, but not be able to articulate what you're doing. And I think the more important part of it is that you're able to articulate it in a way that people understand. Mm. It's not super highbrow, something that's really hard. I like to use analogies when I talk and things that are relatable to people. I like to use food analogies a lot when talking about design because when we think about recipes and how a chef brings something together, there is a certain amount of science to it. You need this many cups of flour, cups of sugar, you know, sticks of butter or what have you for a cake. But there's also a little bit of art to it. There's a little bit of feel, and that's where the chef's artistry comes in. But when we talk about things being in balance, like I talk about space, proportion, light, and material, the fundamental ingredients that make up good architecture, they're no different than the flour, sugar, water, butter that make up a great cake. You have to have everyone in right proportion and you bring them together in the right way and you'll have a beautiful thing. But if you mix up, let's say, the sugar and the salt and you put in two cups of salt and one, you know, a dash of sugar, you're going to have a very different cake. It has the same things in it, but not the same kinds of proportions of those things. And so that's an instant understandable idea that people can relate to. And so when we can relate design concepts to the everyday, it really makes that bridge that we're looking for so that they can trust that when I talk about their design, I know what I'm talking about. And it's not as mysterious as they might think. And they should be a part of this process and understanding it and be along for the ride and enjoying it like I am. Absolutely. So with the evolution of your architectural practice and launching your own company, How has your design process kind of evolved from what you were doing with other architects versus what you're doing now? You've touched on space, proportion, light, and materials. Tell us more about your personal architectural philosophy and design philosophy. Oh, yeah. The idea of space, proportion, light, and material came to me when my wife, who was following a certain fashion, I guess you'd call him a fashion blogger now, but this was before the blog days, would describe what a good outfit should have. Color, pattern, texture, and shine, right? You should have a touch of color. You need some pattern. There ought to be some texture that helps give a tactile quality to the outfit and a little bit of shine, something that sparkles. And I thought, if you can make the ingredients for a great outfit that clear and succinct, how can we make the ingredients for a good architecture that clear and succinct? So I spent some time looking at the DNA, if you will, of the buildings that I admired, things that I thought were good examples of the built environment. And what I began to understand is that they all exhibited a certain understanding and care for those four fundamental assets, space, proportion, light, and material. You begin with space. Do you have enough of it? Is it what you need? Is it the basic raw ingredient to deliver the project that you're thinking about, whether it's a house or a hotel or a, a theater? You'll have to have a certain amount of space. But that space means nothing until you can bring proportion to it, to begin to meter the space, to control the space, and command it to be the kind of space you need to support what you're doing and the people who are going to be in it. 
And then you have to light the space. You have to bring life to it. And there is no greater giver of life than natural light. It is the thing we always seek as humans, right? Mm -hmm. It's the light at the end of the tunnel that pulls us through that dark mm -hmm. tunnel. It's the sunrise in the morning that gets us up out of bed. Light and the cycle of light and dark is a fundamental driver that ignites the human spirit. So you have to invest light, which brings life. And the very last thing we think about is what material is it made out of? And we don't think about that last because it's not important, but rather we think about it last because until we get space, proportion, and light figured out, it doesn't matter what material it's wearing. It could be white drywall, white plaster, and it could still be an amazing building if you have space, proportion, mm -hmm. and light. Mm -hmm. If you don't have those three and you spend a buttload of money on really expensive materials, that's all you'll have is just expensive materials. Mm -hmm. So... We think about what the building wears, its clothes, what materials it's made out of last, so that we can make good decisions about those materials based on space, proportion, and light. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was my aha moment where I said, okay, here's a method now where I can look at every opportunity I have for making a building, modifying buildings, and apply this process. And it can be certainly quantified to a degree. And it eliminates opportunities for error. Mm -hmm. I always like to eliminate opportunities for mistakes where possible. And this really does that. Because if it passes the test of having the right space, well-proportioned, adequately lit, and wearing the right materials, it will be a good piece of architecture, mm -hmm. period. It has to be, right? Mm -hmm. You can't make a mistake if you follow that simple recipe. Well, and this is an example of what I meant by you're a good teacher and you're able to articulate that. Mm -hmm. We need to get that in a book. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking, <laughs> well, that's so funny. I have thought about writing something, but when you write a, something down, you define the way that message gets carried. Mm -hmm. And every time I tell this story, I tell it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. The idea of having a definitive method for describing or defining something scares the hell out of me. Because what if I get it wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that might be one of the things that also is a challenge that I face with the work that we do is worrying too much about getting it wrong. And I think the way we do that is we just try to get as much right as we can, knowing that we can't get everything right, knowing that we can have a certain amount of influence, but not 100% influence on what the end product is. So if we do mostly good, we should be okay. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the blessings and the curse of being a creative and being in this environment is that we often second guess ourselves or, you know, and we are most of us tend to be a little bit of perfectionists and we want things done right. And we, we know all the rules to do that. But then at some point we do have to go, wait, I've been doing this for over 20 years. I might know a little something about yeah. it. <laughs> and there needs to be a certain amount of intuition and a certain amount mm -hmm. of art to it where you can't make everything quantified and measured. You have to allow for a certain amount of deviation. Mm -hmm. Being a musician that's something that I admire. When I watch like a, a jazz trio play mm -hmm. a song and they don't know where they're going when they begin. They kind of know, but they know what song they're going to play, but that's just a very, very rough mm -hmm. structure. Like this is the chord progression and this is the melody. And then we're going to set off on a series of deviations and see where that goes. And it cycles through each of the instruments and they all play a different solo and they're exploring new territories. And sometimes it's great and successful and other times it's not, but the things that are not successful are actually a, just another thread in the tapestry that they weave together that is this performance. And that's what creates the moments of magic, is there's always going to be something that isn't 100%. 
because that's how we know what 100% really is. Mm-hmm. Colton's a musician as well, and his mother's a jazz singer. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Hi, Colton. Hi. <laughs> You've been sitting quietly over there. I was waiting for you to jump in. Yeah, yeah. No, I was so intrigued by what you were saying. My mom's a musician. I play music and stuff, and so do my roommates. So yeah, cool. When we're jamming and we're, we'll just you get into that about. zone, and then all of a sudden, like you started like with a KG Elephant song, and then you're ending with like a Red Hot Chili Pepper song or totally. something like that. So yeah. it's really, really fun, and it's crazy just to see a product evolve into yeah. something more. But yeah, I wanted to talk to you earlier. You mentioned some stuff about project management and business skills and how crucial that is to architecture. Yeah. So for our listeners out there that are in college or that are thinking about architecture, would you recommend that they do enroll in some business courses or some project management courses? Did you do that? Or what are your thoughts on that? Those are great questions. And yes, absolutely. If you're in school and you have access to anything in the way of a business class, something that teaches you how to run a small business or just how to organize and manage your time and understand that there are tasks that you're going to be needing to do as a design professional. There's two words in that phrase, design, Mm -hmm. professional, and the professional Mm -hmm. is a much bigger part than the design part is. You'll have to be good at design, but you have to be a professional to be able to get your designs out, right? We talked about that. If you can learn how to be a professional and understand that others are going to rely on your work, So you're going to need to be responsible to them. You're going to need to learn how to keep other people to their responsibilities to you. Other people will owe you information and things. That Mm -hmm. includes the client. That includes the consultants. Designer. The designer, the (laughs) contractor. There are so many people at play here that you'll be responsible to and who in converse sense are responsible to you that you have to understand how to manage those people Mm -hmm. and how to get those assets that you need. There's a great book that I love. It was written way back in the 30s. It's called How to Win Friends and Influence People. I've heard of that one, yeah. Great book. Mm -hmm. A little hard to read now because the language from the 30s is just different than what we're used to. But if you get past that and you look at some of the fundamental ideas that Dale Carnegie is suggesting, is that if you understand what motivates people to do or not do something— you can use that motivation as your tool to help them see why helping you and doing what you want them to do for you mm-hmm. is really good for them. Yeah, it's a mutually beneficial Absolutely. partnership. Yeah, I'm not talking about like Jedi mind tricks where you will give me <laughs> the work I need by next week, you know, but yeah. you explain to them why having the work that they owe you by next week is not only good for you, but it'll be good for them. And you phrase it in terms they understand and appreciate. They will move mountains for you. So understanding what moves other people is perhaps the most important business skill. Because once you do that, then you can use the trick on yourself and you can move yourself in ways. And now you've you've moved the other people in ways that move you towards your project goal. And that's amazing, right? Whether it's getting paid by your client, whether it's getting the information from the consultants on time, whether it's getting a contractor to listen and not do that 45-degree angled uh, bench in the shower that you absolutely don't want because you've seen it in every tractome and like you'll kill yourself if you see another one. Right. <laughs> How do you convince them that that's a bad idea mm-hmm. without calling them out for being you know, a moron? You're not a bad guy. You're just making yeah. a bad decision. Let's talk about what the alternatives are. Right, right. So having an understanding about how to manage people is really important. And then managing your business, like managing your books. How do you make money in this business? You know, that's super important. So if you can 
study those two things, people management and asset management, dollars, Mm -hmm. do it, absolutely. Or go work for somebody who's willing to share that information with you. Right, which is where the mentors come in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And along those lines, it's interesting to me because there is a balance between the psychology of running a business Mm. and the business of running a business. How much of your, clearly you're skilled, clearly you have a background, your education speaks for itself, your experience speaks for itself, but how much do you think that your intuition plays into how you run your business and how you run your architectural design process? Yeah, that's a great question. Intuition is everything, right? I think that going back to the music example and our jazz trio we talked about, each one of those musicians is skilled at their instrument. They can you know, read music, they can play the music, and when you put them together with the others, suddenly they're going to now have to have a dialogue, and that dialogue is going to be based on mutual trust, and that trust is going to lead them in certain directions that their intuition will guide, right? So if you don't have intuition, you won't be able to predict what the next thing this person's going to do, what it is and how you can fit into it, right? Oh, they're going to take it into this minor key. I'd better follow suit and find Mm -hmm. the complementary to that. Or if I know I want to move them out of that, I'll play maybe a a different note that'll lead them towards another direction, right? Mm -hmm. Business is no different. You have to have an intuition about what's happening next, both in your own brain, in your client's brain, in the consultant's brain, so that you can predict and then either make adjustment to accommodate what's coming or try to make an adjustment in what they're doing so that they don't do what you don't want Mm -hmm. them to do. Mm -hmm. So intuition is huge. And I'll tell you the challenge that I have right now is that I trust my intuition and I've had very good luck with my intuition, but my intuition is not something that I can bottle. I can't put it down on paper. Mm -hmm. I can't qualify it or quantify it in a way that I can give it to other people. And geez, I'm 52. I'm looking in another 10 years, I'm going to be 62. In 20 years, I'll be 72. God bless me if I live that long. But I don't want to die and have my business die as well. Mm -hmm. And if my business relies on my intuition, how do I transfer that so that it isn't bound by my intuition, but can we qualify the intuition to a degree where I can share my perspective with others? in my organization, and they can begin to see and have intuition the way I do. Now, the blessing would be that the people who start having that intuition would be those who maybe see things a little differently than I do. I like to think I'm always right. That's one of my major personality failings. My (laughs) wife will tell you I'm a terrible narcissist. I think you said you're a Capricorn. That goes with the territory, doesn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. Proud Capricorn. And, you know, we know we are the best sign of all. So that's our problem. But the reality is, is that if I can find good people who work with me, I don't even like to say for me, but work with Mm -hmm. me that are smarter than I am, brighter than I am, more talented than I am, and have an intuition that I can help shape and form, at least by creating a boundary. And I think my space, proportion, light, and material fundamentals are part of that, right? These are what are valuable to me. These are the things I think are important. And if we all look at them as being important, you won't make bad decisions and you can trust your intuition around that context. So my goal is to find the right people, keep the right people, and be able to put them into a position where their intuitions can become an extension of the business. Mm -hmm. And it won't just be me. But the idea of intuition is incredibly important. You should trust your intuition and know that it will normally guide you in the right direction, Mm -hmm. you know? 
I was having a conversation yesterday with another colleague, and we were talking a little bit about this. And I was saying, you know, when you've been in the business long enough, you can see who's well-trained, who has the education. And you've, you've seen it with young architects and designers that come along. There is a certain knowing that some designers and architects have, a certain in- level of intuition that others don't. And I, I'm curious about the same thing with people that I work with. How do you train that or how do you teach that? Foster it. How do you, yeah, how do you, fo- how yeah. do you pull the best out of people yeah. with that? I didn't realize until having this conversation today, our backgrounds were kind of similar. I also kind of went willy nilly as I started college, took me eight years to finish and I don't have a PhD to prove it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I could have been a brain surgeon with all the <laughs> bloody school that I went through. Exactly. And then, but later went on to get my master's degree for the reason of teaching potentially. But that's the part that's really fascinating to me is how do you pull out the best in people? And I agree, surround yourself with people better than you people smarter than you, people, and the education is great, but I think that that intuition and there is an innate, back to what we were talking about, the things that we were doing at five or six or seven years old, there's this innate ability in some people that is not there in every every person. Or no. and maybe they find their lane that maybe it's some people are stronger at running the office or the back end. Absolutely. But. And all of those talents are really important too. Mm-hmm. I could not fill my office with a bunch of people who were duplicates of me or who shared my same intuitions or skills because that would be like filling a toolbox with a bunch of screwdrivers. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's great if all you're ever going to do is drive a screw. But if you need a hammer and a saw and a ratchet and a Mm -hmm. wrench and any of the other things that round out a toolbox and make it useful, you're going to need to find those different pieces and assemble that box in a way that gets the job done, right? The toolbox, another great analogy, right? Mm -hmm. Not everybody's a hammer, not everybody's a screwdriver. I like to think I'm a bit of a Swiss Army knife because I can do a lot of different things. The problem with the Swiss Army knife, of course, is that it's never really good at any one of those things. It just kind of does all of them with some mediocrity. And I like to think I'm a little better than mediocre at most of what I do. But I'm smart enough to know that I can do a lot of these things. And that gives me the ability to know when we're moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But I also need people who are better than I am at all of these tasks so that they can then take it and go where I can't. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm no fool to think that while I like to believe I'm always right and I'm smart and I'm a Capricorn and, you know, I'm a total (laughs) narcissist, I believe that, but I also go to bed at night knowing you're an idiot if you think that you don't need other people to help you. You absolutely do. And really... That's where the magic comes in the design world. In anything creative, when you can be collaborative, right? Mm -hmm. To use, again, the music analogy. When Mm -hmm. you put four musicians on the stage and you ask them to perform, just get out of the way and let them create something that hasn't been before. Because those four will move in directions that even they don't know where they're going. But they trust their intuition, they trust their skill, and that's what allows for great things to create. Just for the record, I actually, I know we throw around the term narcissist a lot in pop culture, (laughs) but I actually know some narcissists, some real ones. You're not one. (laughs) Would you call my wife and let her know? (laughs) I know your wife. I'll let her know. She she likes to kid me about it because we are very opposite, she and I, in personality and in a number of ways. But then we have like certain commonalities, things that we share. We have a great love for, you know, good music and for travel. And she is the first person I ever dated who said she had a favorite building 
but was not in the design field at all. You know, she mm-hmm. said, oh, I, I thought, wow, you actually notice buildings. Wow, okay, this is really amazing, right? <laughs> so this relationship could have yeah. some legs. Somebody yeah. who's got an awareness of the built environment. That's mm-hmm. pretty profound. Mm-hmm. So you're saying I'm not a narcissist. That that really helps. I'm going to get that in writing. <laughs> okay, I'll call Cynthia later. Thank you. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the buildings that you admire, Yeah, that she admires, that you admire. What? inspires you creatively, not just in the built world, but just in general. Clearly, music does, but what else? Well, music, of course. Art. I'm very interested in how artists transform materials and use them to create moments that I like to call the aesthetic arrest. When you look at something, whether it's a sculpture or a painting or a photograph, I'm an amateur photographer too, and I love to make great images that have beautiful compositions and that just cause your mind to look and stop and have that moment of, oh, isn't that lovely? And you're not sure why. I think that's the best kind of reaction is when you can't look at something and go, oh, I like that because, but you rather say, I don't know why I love this, but I can't stop looking at it. That's a Mm. really important moment. Or I don't know why I like the sound of this, but I can't stop listening to this. So I look for inspiration in a lot of places. I like beautiful words, great prose. When I read books and the the author has woven together a string of words that create an environment that you find yourself lost in, that's a transcendent moment. And so all mm-hmm. of those things kind of add up to the same goal for me is that moment of transcendence or aesthetic arrest in our buildings, that we can create a place where you arrive in the space and you're held for a moment. And then you move to another point of view within that building. And again, you're held. And things shift around you in response to a wide variety of factors, right? We design according to light and view and need and budget. And all of these different things go into the pot to stir up to become what we design. Mm -hmm. But we're always in search of those moments of aesthetic arrest where we're just at this suspended, peaceful place. So inspiration comes from a lot of different things. I be lying if I said I look at a lot of other buildings. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm aware of other buildings, but I don't often look at them for... Inspiration. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. And then it's not because they're not, they're not inspiration. They certainly <laughs> are. But I've always found that the buildings we make have never been made before. So looking right. at another building isn't going to help me. That's how I feel, too, from a design perspective. I, I don't necessarily follow a bunch of design trends or things that go on. Now, I do take inspiration from nature and Mm -hmm. things around me that I think evoke emotion and evoke Mm -hmm. feeling. And I think that's a different, I think, again, that goes back to that intuitive feeling when you feel really connected with nature or connected with music or with art. It's about the evoking emotion. Yeah, it's easy to look at buildings and say, oh, I like the way that looks. I'm going to make a building of mine look like that. I'm going to do that. Yeah, that's. But that's not a good reaction, right? As a designer, we are reacting to the forces that are around our building, and the reactions add up together to become the design solution. And that design solution, 99 times out of 100, is incredibly unique and only in this one location at this time for this one person, right? And so... It's never been made before. I'm not going to find an example of it. And so it's really my job to try and figure out what is the best resolution of this and in its physical form. And its physical form will be a manifestation of balancing all those forces together. Mm-hmm. I know it cracks me up when clients go, well, can you send me a picture of what that looks like? And I'm like, I, I can draw it for you and yeah. I can 
show you some material. No, I can't because it doesn't exist. Well, that's the, that's one of the challenges, I think, fundamentally with the built environment. It is that we, as humans, think that we perceive the built environment with our eyes because it is the tool with which we see. Mm-hmm. What we see, however, is often very deceiving from what actually is. And the body actually perceives what is. The subconscious perceives what is. The mm-hmm. eyes perceive what is built. And mm-hmm. they're very different. And so when a client wants to know what it's going to look like, or I've never seen that before. I hear that all the time. Well, I've never seen that before. I don't think that's going to work. And you're like, mm. <laughs> just because you've not seen it before doesn't mean it's not going to work. But mm-hmm. convincing them that it isn't necessarily their eyes they're going to be experiencing the building with is a very big challenge for me. But when you think about it, and I ask these questions of them, Think of the nicest building or the most transformative built environment you've been in, whether it was a Gothic church in France or a little house down in, uh, in Costa Rica or something in the jungle. Just think of that moment. What did it look like to you? 99 times out of 100, they can't tell they you can't what tell it you. looks right. like because it's not the look. It wasn't the eyes mm-hmm. that remember. Yeah. They the say, feel. I can tell you what it felt like. Yeah. I'm like, well, there you go. Okay, so <laughs> now we again can find commonality and we can talk about those things and they will, I hope, give me a little more trust that it isn't so much about what it looks like, but it's about what it does and how it makes you feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look is a very small part of it. Yes. Yeah. So what is your most rewarding project since we're talking about feeling and everything? So do you have one? And that can mean a number of things. Rewarding in the sense of that you got to create what you wanted to do. I'll tell you this. I think the most rewarding projects that we've done are the ones where we've had a client who has given trust, who has allowed us to take them to places they didn't expect they were going to go, and who in the end appreciate that they are living in something that they could never have even conceived of and understand that it's more than what they ever expected. That for Mm -hmm. me is like the definition of success. And Mm -hmm. uh, we get that success in a variety of different ways and in different measures on every project, right? It's kind of like, I wouldn't say that I play golf, but I have a set of golf clubs and I occasionally (laughs) go out and hit golf balls. Now, what is a good golf game for me, right? It's going to be a different measure than somebody else who shoots par or under golf, right? For me, it's can I get one good drive? Out of Mm -hmm. 18 holes, do I get one good drive? Do I get one good putt? Do I get one good chip up onto the Mm -hmm. green? If I can stitch together one decent shot in all of those categories across an 18-hole round of Mm -hmm. golf, that's a victory for me. I look at that as like, that's a great success. That's a good game of golf. Mm -hmm. I look at our projects in somewhat similar ways, that if in every project we're hitting some mark and doing it well, and we're leaving behind something that the owner can appreciate, whether consciously or subconsciously, that moves them and changes the way they live their life, right, is really transformative, then we've had a successful project. So we try to have successful projects every single time. Mm -hmm. Some are different. We maybe hit the mark on more than we do on others, but we always try to leave something behind that's meaningful for every project. So what's my favorite? I'd tell you, Everyone, I'd be like asking you, which is my favorite child, right? Because they are (laughs) like babies. They're all great. They are just different and they're great for different reasons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No, no, no. It's totally understandable. (laughs) Do you still do things? I mean, I'm still on the subject of inspiration and, and creating these projects. Do you? I know when I got out of design school, they hammered it. I mean, keep your sketchbook with you at all times. Mm. Do you still do little things like that, or have you 
Interesting question. I'm a notoriously poor sketcher. I mean, I really, <laughs> Me too. I would really like to be a much better sketcher than I am. And I, I can sit in a meeting with pen and paper and I can sketch ideas and convey through graphics mm-hmm. ideas, right? And so I have facility there. If you ask me to sit down like on a park bench and sketch a church that I'm looking at or a, you yeah. know, a beautiful cathedral or something, I'd be like, huh, that's just <laughs> not going to happen. And I've tried, I've really tried. So no, I don't keep a sketchbook with me. And I feel like in many ways, I'm an absolute failure as an architect for that because I know a lot of the architects I admire do that. They keep their little sketchbook Mm -hmm. with them and they're able to, with great facility, create amazing capturing of moments and they just get just the right amount of information and not too much. Like their sketches are as good as the buildings are because Mm -hmm. they embody just the right information in just the right way. It's a skill I don't have, but I really admire that. So no, it's it's a failing of mine and I'll, I'll go to the grave regretting it. So thanks for bringing that up. I really appreciate that. <laughs> no, I think that they're, same with designers. I think some designers are really talented with, with drawing and sketching and others aren't. It doesn't make you less of a designer. It's yeah. just, you know, you have other strengths in other areas. Mm-hmm. How do you keep learning in the process? Because I feel like architecture, art, design, music, Mm -hmm. it's constantly evolving. There's always something to learn. What keeps you fresh and keeps you on your toes? I like to read a lot, and I like to read a lot of different kinds of books, novels. You'll find this hard to believe, but I have an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old, two boys at home. We've been reading bedtime stories since they were really little, and we still, to this day, at 16 and 18, we'll climb into bed together at the end of the day and we'll have story time. Now, it's different stories or different subject matter. I mentioned mm-hmm. the Dale Carnegie book. We read that together because I want them to understand the rest of the world doesn't care about you. You need to learn how to make <laughs> them care about you. And here's right. how you do it. Yeah, the rest of the world isn't mommy and daddy. So the books have certainly changed, but the time is still there. And so exploring novels, exploring uh, management books, exploring just some fundamental things that help us understand the world around us, I find really is applicable to architecture. Again, I'll go back to the toolbox analogy, Mm -hmm. my cooking analogy, my music analogy. All of the rest of the world is design. Mm -hmm. It's what we do. It just is done in a different context. All of those other things are very relatable to the client and the general public. They understand the toolbox. They understand the the cooking. They understand the music. Another one I like to talk about is like going to the grocery store. If you fill up your cart at the grocery store and you go to the checkout line and you have $150 worth of groceries, but you only have $75, you're only going to leave with $75 worth of stuff. Now, you have to choose what that $75 dollars worth of stuff is, even though you want $150 worth. Our work is the same. If you've only got a $75 budget, we're not going to design you a $150 house. And just because you want it doesn't make it possible. So mm-hmm. understanding that the world has a set of realities and being able to talk about those realities in ways that help the client understand really helps me practice better. And so inspiration comes with understanding how to better communicate, how to talk about the world in a way that people understand, and helping to convince them that the way I'm seeing it is the way that can help be better for you Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So that's really one of my hobbies is understanding how to communicate better with others. Same, me too. I think it's so important. I think the psychology of design and kind of the underbelly of it 
is so important as we communicate is it's it's not just the way I'm seeing it, but there's a reason for how it's being seen. And if I can convey that appropriately, then you understand that it comes back to the feelings that will be evoked, mm-hmm. the emotion, how you're going to feel in that space. Well, design is never something that should be done frivolously. Mm-hmm. Design is not folly. Good design does not happen because you woke up today and you felt like doing A, B, or C, right? We never design with those kind of throwaway ideas. We design with purpose, Mm -hmm. which is the name of your Mm -hmm. podcast. Mm -hmm. It's the name of your charity. It's the name of the entire idea. It's the name of the game, right? Let's Mm -hmm. be honest. Designing with purpose. Nothing that's created that's good was created by accident, right? There is obviously serendipity. Things Mm -hmm. can lead you in a way that you didn't expect, Mm -hmm. but it always begins with intent. It begins with purpose. And that intent and purpose is what becomes the fuel that drives the design forward. So when we can help our clients understand that we're making decisions that are intentional, mm-hmm. that are on purpose and for a direction that's going to lead to something better for them and help them understand that we don't make frivolous decisions. And my suggestion to you isn't because I woke up feeling X, Y, or Z today, right. but I'm really advising you that this is the right way to go because there are a number of factors to consider. That's the best possible outcome. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because these folks might never have this opportunity to do it again, and they may have never done it before, right? Building a custom home or doing the kind of projects we are involved with, it doesn't happen over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's not like going to a restaurant. It's mm-hmm. not like going shopping. It's not like going to a concert. These things happen once in someone's lifetime if they're lucky. Mm-hmm. How do we convince them to hand over an incredible amount of money and power and decision-making to us if we can't possibly communicate that what we're doing is purposeful. Right. We have to. Right. And I think, again, showing that connectivity back to your our discussion about business and psychology, and there's a connective tissue for all of that, for someone to come to you and know that you're going to be a good steward, not only with their resources mm. and time, and certainly their architecture and the development of it, but all of those things are so important. I mean, it could be someone's life savings that they're entrusting you with. Yeah, it's an incredible responsibility. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I think that we're good at what we do. You know, we, the collective we, uh, professionals, designers who are trained and do work with intention, and you're going to end up with something that's going to be amazing. I mm-hmm. mean, if you trust your professional and you've hired the right ones, you'll do fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But engendering that trust and bringing confidence to the client's perspective so that they understand that when you're making decisions on their behalf, they're informed and thoughtful decisions that they may not really understand the dynamics of, Mm -hmm. but they will see the results of. They'll see the benefits of. They'll see the, what's the word I'm looking for? The dividends, right? On that investment of trust, those dividends will pay back even greater than the investment itself. And Mm so when we can convince our clients, and I don't even like the word convince, when we can help educate them and get them to be enthusiastic supporters of what we're doing, mm-hmm. that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you bringing up the intention portion of what we do. And yes, Design with Purpose, our podcast and our nonprofit, all of that is very intentional. But I also, it's interesting when we talk with other designers, architects, creatives in general. I think that there is a level of intention, and you touched on this 
earlier, I was actually going to bring it up. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad it came around again. You touched on being lucky. You kind of had a, a windy road to get through school and all of that, but that you had a vision that sounded, even if you didn't know at that young age what it was that you were doing, but you were manifesting and you were creating a very specific intention oh, to sure. get you where you were. And I feel, and I'm curious your thoughts on it, as a creator and designer, architect, do you feel like there is an innate ability for us to see something that doesn't exist that might come a little bit more naturally than it does for other people? Or do you believe that we all can tap into this resource? And maybe that's part of what we're trying to share with people. So when we talk about communicating and earning that level of trust, part of it comes back to sharing you might not know how to see the vision, but let me help you see it. Yeah. I'd like to think that we all have it in us to be deliberate with our actions that will lead to a better outcome, whether it's in design or, as you called it, like kind of designing your future, right? Mm -hmm. And when I've talked with students, I've said that. You need to be responsible for your own design in the sense that what you do here in school and then how you use those tools outside to go get work, who you choose to work for, how you apply your energies and what you learn from the experience, that's your responsibility and you have to design it. You have to put yourself in positions to be able to have the kinds of experiences that will make you a better manifester of the built environment. You know, one of, it's funny. You talked about writing a book. One of the books I want to write is called Everything I Needed to Know I Learned Working at a Gas Station. Because <laughs> I did. I literally learned everything I needed to know about business and how to conduct myself and be with people by working at a, a gas station. Really, I should call it a service station. It was an old 76 mm -hmm. station like where we pumped your gas, right? And we checked your tire pressure and your oil and filled up the windshield washer fluid and wiped down the windows for you. And my dad used to work at a mobile station. Yeah, yeah. I mean, talk about how cute my mom was to her grandmother. <laughs> oh, <laughs> very cool. I didn't meet my wife at the service station, but uh, I, I did meet a lot of very interesting people. And people, when they are in transit, when they are coming and going, and you're just a stop along the way, they treat you very differently than they might otherwise. You sort of get people at their realist because mm -hmm. their guard is down and they have no intention other than just moving on, right? And I would run into some of the most wonderful people and some of the most awful people. But in the end of the day, it was clear my boss expected that I treated everybody with the same amount of respect and gave them the opportunities and the kinds of service that we were expected to provide. In fact, I remember I was on the full-serve aisle pumping somebody's gas, washing their windows, and there was a, a young lady on the opposite side of the gas station having trouble with the self-serve pump. It was back in the day you had to like lift levers and turn on the machines and it was a bit complicated. And I saw her getting frustrated and I got frustrated and I just started yelling from across the parking lot. Hey, just, just lift the handle. You just got You got to turn it on first, you know, no, no. And I was screaming and yelling while the full service customer is right in front of me. This person is looking at me from across the parking lot. And my boss walks out and he goes, what is your problem? Are you crazy? Don't ever shout at one of my customers again. And he took the windshield washing thing from the squeegee from my hand and he he started fixing the, the gal on full serve and made me walk over to the self-serve. And he said, now you go pump her gas and you check her tires and you check her oil and you treat her like she's on full serve. And if you ever talk to anybody like that again, I'll kick your butt square in the ass and you're out of here, mm -hmm. you know? And that left a lasting understanding that the customer and the service you provide are key. The product 
the gas is maybe secondary, maybe even third to the experience, mm-hmm. right? If they have a good experience at our gas station, they'll come back. And that's what I try to do now is give people a good experience at my service mm-hmm. so that they want to come back or that they just enjoy the time then that we're together. The product, I wouldn't say it's somewhat tertiary, but in a way it is, right? I mean, the design we're making, it's going to be built and they're going to live in it and it's going to have a lasting impact on their life. But if the service we provide isn't good, they're never going to enjoy being in that space. Right. You know? And so I try to couple good design with great service because the two things really are connected. Mm-hmm. And um, as human beings, we form those kinds of subconscious connections in our brain. And if I didn't do a good job servicing you, I won't be able to do a good job leaving a lasting good impression in my building for you. Mm-hmm. I just left a design workshop and it was a bunch of professionals together talking about the business of design. And we were talking about just that. Don't ever forget that we are in the service business. Yeah. And that is what we are here to do, especially as interior designers. You know, the difference between what you do and what we do, we are a luxury business. Not everyone has the luxury of having an interior designer. That's right. Even people that need an architect have to have an architect. They don't need an interior designer. So we are providing a luxury service and it should never be forgotten. So we try to elevate our game here and treat it more as a concierge service to work as that liaison between the architect, between the builder, and really give a service to our clients that goes above and beyond. Yes, we're doing all of the interior design detail work and the the elevations and the drawings and the materials and so on and so forth, but more so for us, it's about the service and the connection to the client. Yeah, all those things you talked about are the tools we use. But when I was working at that service station, I was also changing oil, changing tires. And I thought, man, maybe I'll become an auto mechanic, you know, because I had a facility with tools. I was interested in the way machines worked. And there was a service portion to that as well. And none of the customers that came to the shop and trusted their cars to the mechanics that worked there understood how any of their tools worked. Mm -hmm. None of them stepped into the shop and pretended to know and tried to do or fix the car themselves, right? How many of our clients try to do the design themselves? But (laughs) the point was, they didn't have to understand the tools to know that the service they were getting and the quality of the product and the outcome was going to be high, right? They came Mm -hmm. and they trusted in these mechanics to do a good job for them because the service was good and the results were good. The tools aren't important. And in many ways, it's the same for us. While the tools are important for you and me to be able to communicate to contractors to get these things built, those tools aren't ultimately very important to the client. Mm -hmm. This is maybe one of the great challenges in our business is that we do provide a service, we don't make a product. The things we produce are not products for the owner, but rather tools to be used to build the house. So just like when the framer leaves your project after he's built the home, he doesn't leave behind his tool belt. Mm -hmm. Those are his tools that he used to build the house. The work we prepare, the drawings, the documents, the notes we make, all of the technical bits of information, they're our tools and they're not the product that we leave Mm -hmm. behind for the owner. We leave behind the actual building, right? Invested with all the ideas and the thoughts and the intention Mm -hmm. that we had when Mm -hmm. we designed this thing. So Mm -hmm. helping them understand that that's what's important. It's the level of service and the level of thought and the product that's left, not the tools we used to make it for you. That's the important thing. Mm -hmm. 
I love the title of your book, Everything I Needed uh, to Learn, uh, I Learned at the Service Station. Yeah, I'm going to do it. Perfect. It kind you of, can write the forward for right. me. <laughs> it's funny. I drove past an old service station the other day, and I thought, because I mentioned to you I'm, we're looking for a new design space, and I thought, that could be a really oh, cool design space. I've <laughs> always wanted to live in a gas station. Seriously, yeah. <laughs> there's, so cool. There is a, there's a gas station. Now it's a tire store down on the corner of Coast Highway and Vista del Sol, right at Three Arch Bay. And I always thought that would be the coolest house to live in and have like this cool outdoor living environment under the canopy where the gas pumps were. Mm -hmm. I mean, oh, I just, I love that idea. (laughs) Well, along the lines of everything I need to know, I I learned at a service station. We know that you do a lot of work with students and you do some teaching or lecturing. Tell us a little bit more about that. And then what kind of advice would you give to them and slash your younger self if you think about young Anders? Thinking about what advice to give, I, I think the best advice that I wish I knew and trusted a little more early was that your mistakes don't matter as much as you think they will, right? We're always afraid of making a mistake, of what the cost is going to be. Yet we rarely talk about with ourselves what is the cost if you don't make that mistake? What is the cost if you don't take that risk, right? It's much easier to focus on the negative. And mm-hmm. so mistakes happen. There are a lot of mistakes that lead to really good resolutions because you never would have gotten there had you not found yourself in hot water, right? Happy By making mistakes. that mistake. Yeah. And so I think a really good bit of advice is just understanding that your mistakes will matter a lot less than you think. And the more mistakes you're making, the more you're learning and the more stretching you're doing of yourself and your abilities, right? I think of like a gymnast or a tightrope walker, somebody who's constantly practicing working on the balance beam. They fall off a lot. They fall off, they fall off. They have to fall off. If they're not falling off, they're not trying, right? Mm -hmm. And if falling off means failure, then failure must mean good. And so you need to fail a lot. So look Mm -hmm. at your mistakes as opportunities to learn and realize they won't really mean that much in the end. So I think that's a good bit of advice. I get to do a lot of teaching and critiquing with students. I've got friends at Cal Poly Pomona who are instructors and they invite me often to to lecture the students and to do critiques during design studios. And I love that as a way of staying connected to the students because you get to see what they're doing and what they're thinking about. And then you also get to offer them bits of advice and say, hey, you know, there was a, I remember when I was in your spot in studio and there was an instructor who made a comment to me that I didn't understand that day, but maybe six months, six years later, I kind of brought it back around full circle and I was like, oh man, okay, yeah. So if I can share some of those little tidbits of knowledge, I love that opportunity. In fact, last year, we're going to be doing it again this year, we hosted a studio. This was at Cal Baptist University for their program of architecture and their graduate degree. We hosted a studio and specifically challenged the students to use that idea, space, proportion, light, and material. How do you employ those tools and make your project better for humans to occupy, for people to be in, for the body to communicate with the built environment? And it was fascinating to see how they interpreted the things that we find important Mm -hmm. into buildings that in ways they thought was important. And we were really happy at the end of that studio. There was incredible work. We offered cash scholarships to the students who had the best examples of having embodied those principles. And to see that a student listens to what you have to say and thinks it might be worthy enough to actually spend their time 
making in a way they might not have before mm -hmm. and see the results of that being exceptional, it was very rewarding for us. So I love to stay connected to teaching because it allows me to see things through their eyes, right? And then also it allows me to reinforce things that I'm doing too. When I repeat myself many times over year after year about a certain design idea or a principle, I have to hold myself accountable to that too. Mm -hmm. I can't just be mouthing it. So I like the idea that we get to critique and talk about design because it helps me stay in contact with what's important for me when I design. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would suspect almost like having a child that it also fosters that seeing it in a new light again. So you can take your principles of yes. design and principles of architecture, but then you can see it new through somebody else's eyes, a young student, and go, well, I hadn't actually thought of it that way. That's right. <laughs> uh, the other fresh. thing that's really good too, it's very selfish, but if there's a good student and we're able to help shape them and then they graduate and come to work for me, mm -hmm. <laughs> it just happened on more than one occasion, that can be really awesome. Yeah. yeah. So elevating others and helping them realize a way of seeing that they couldn't see before, I find that to be just amazing. Like that moment of aha, mm -hmm. when you see that in someone's eyes, whether they found it themselves or you were able to kind of lead them to it, doesn't matter, but just seeing that moment of realization is so rewarding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Would you consider the teaching component to what you're doing or your practice? What would you like your legacy to be? I yeah. ask that question to architects because you are building things that are leaving a lasting impression. So I'm curious from your perspective, what would the legacy look like? That's a really good question. I think the best way to sum it up would be, I would like for my legacy to be that I had something worthy to say that resonates with others. And worthy to say whether it was using my mouth to talk to a student in critique or to lecture or to share ideas like we're sharing today, or whether it's to have something to say through the built environment and the buildings we make that we leave behind, that strive to be timeless, that aren't based on fad, that aren't based on mm -hmm. trend or style, but transcend all of those things and look for a kind of resolution that is, you know, that aesthetic arrest. Again, I talked mm -hmm. about that, that pure kind of quality that is just a moment of repose and peace as a composition. If I had something to say that somebody thought was worthy 10, 15 years after I'm dead, my God, that would be amazing, right? <laughs> because then you realize that what you're doing now is meaningful, but what you've done will also have meaning and it'll echo into the future. And I think that's such a great thing. And as a, as a Capricorn narcissist, I like that <laughs> idea. I want to leave a lasting mark, but I want it to be something that was worth saying, right? The worst kind of art, the worst artists on the planet are those that make but have nothing to talk about. Mm. That's not art, right? That's just decorating. That's stuff. That's right. pollution Agree. in a way. Agree. The artists that have something to say, those are the ones that we remember, mm -hmm. right? Those are the ones that leave a mark, that leave a trace, that add another stitch to the tapestry of the environment that has been modified by their presence. And I would like to leave one of those stitches behind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. No, that's wonderful. We talk mm -hmm. a lot about that. Like we don't want to just create things. I spent some time in the product development world. We don't want to create things just to throw 
in another landfill or, I mean, it really has to have meaning behind it. And we approach our design work that way too. So I appreciate everything you're saying. And just as a side note, again, a narcissist talks just to fill the air, (laughs) (laughs) not really adding anything of importance. Yeah. So where do you think, you know, we've talked about envisioning the future, manifesting, where's Anders Laster heading next? And how can our listeners get in touch with you? Oh, What's the future look like? The future looks awesome because I am genuinely and earnestly looking to create an environment in my firm where the people who work with me are as passionate as I am about what we do and why we do it and want to continue to do that long after I'm gone. I want for that to be another part of my legacy, that there are more people interested in doing what I was interested in doing, and they have the capability, maybe even greater capability, in fact, they definitely have greater Mm -hmm. capability than I do, to manifest great things in the built environment. It's too important a responsibility to leave to others, right? I know I can do it better than anybody else, and by God, we're going to do that. It doesn't take much to look around you and see that there is a lot of really bad design and a lot of really bad architects out there. And being a licensed architect does not mean you're a good architect. And being an earnest architect doesn't mean you're a good architect. And being a good architect doesn't mean you're going to leave good architecture. Mm -hmm. You have to be a really good architect under really good circumstances, continuously striving to make good buildings, to actually manifest them and leave them behind. So it, it would be my hope that the future involves a lot of other people working with me in a team to create into the future long after I'm not able to, mm-hmm. or I don't want to. You know, I think as an architect, and probably you feel this way as a designer and musicians feel this way too, you'll be an architect or a designer or a musician until the day you die. Yes. You don't retire. You just, you die at your desk no. because it's mm-hmm. the love of your life, mm-hmm. making and creating. You don't want to lose connection to that voice. So I doubt I'll fade away, but I would like to know that as I maybe step to the side, there are others in place able to run with it. And no. I think I've, I've built the team that's able to do that. And, you know, we talk frequently about that so that they know where we're going, mm-hmm. right? And that they see the roadmap out ahead too and understand they're a part of it, mm-hmm. right? And they have a choice in the direction that it goes. And just because I've been driving down this road doesn't mean we can't take a turn to the right and see where that goes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. we've been talking about that internally as well. In fact, some of the girls in the office were like, wait, why do we keep talking about if you're not around? What is that? Yeah, like? It's not because I'm planning to leave, but at some point I may be. And more so, I'm interested in knowing where you want to go. Right, exactly. You know? I want to know what the team collectively, what does this vision feel like for yeah. all of us to grow as humans? What do you What do you want out of your life and your next chapter? And how do we get there together? And I think creating something that's sustainable is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Creating something that's sustainable means that you've created something that isn't just, again, like a folly or reliant on you and having so much to do with your personality and intent. It really has a life of its own, right? Think of it like your children. I mean, if your children always only lived at home with you and never grew up, that wouldn't be really much of an outcome as a parent. Mm -hmm. I think the parent's ultimate blessing is that their children grow and leave and become their own individuals and eventually parents, and then their children grow and leave, and that that cycle has to continue. If everyone lives in the same house and just dies together, then there's nothing that's happened, right? So we want our children to grow and to excel and become very successful and do things even better than what we did. 
Mm-hmm. That's the same vision for me in my office. My hope is that the people that I've put into place now and as we bring more into the future, they understand and take that role on you know, happily and with vigor and move it in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Now you asked, how can they get a hold of me? Well, that's easy. <laughs> as far as I know, I'm the only architect named Anders within at least a 600-mile radius. <laughs> so uh, the good news is, is if you are in Southern California or anywhere near Southern California, you should be able to find me pretty easily. Just look for Anders Architect somewhere online and you'll find us. But AndersLassiterArchitects.com is the website. That's an easy way to get connected to me and my team. And we'd be happy to talk to you about whatever project, big or small. You know, I always say what's important to us is not the project, it's the client. Mm-hmm. If it's the right client and mm-hmm. they're doing things for the right reason and they have the right set of expectations and they have the level of trust that we do best with, then we can do anything. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter the size of the project. Mm-hmm. If the client doesn't have reasonable expectations and maybe not because it's their fault, but they don't have the education, I always like to share what I know and help them understand really what the realities are. We may not be the right person for everybody, but that's okay. I use the shoe store analogy a lot too, right? <laughs> Architects are like shoes in the shoe store. Mm-hmm. If, I go, if I go into any shoe store, there's thousands of shoes in different sizes and styles. I wear a size 10 4E. I have big Fred Flintstone feet. I can <laughs> promise you not every shoe in that shoe store is going to work for me, right? <laughs> and if I went in there looking for work boots, but they only had ballet slippers, I'm not going to be very happy with the result of buying those shoes. Mm-hmm. So finding the right person to work with is like fitting that shoe to your foot. Mm-hmm. You need the right size. You need the right fit. You need the right style. And it has to feel comfortable so that you can have a level of honesty and trust between Mm -hmm. you and your professional. So Mm -hmm. I'm not the right guy for everybody, but when the fit is right, man, it it feels good. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I introduced you as a colleague because we do work together and a friend, but I failed to mention that you're actually working on my own personal home too. Oh yeah, that's right. Which... As a designer, we can be a little bit picky and snitty. Oh, it's the worst possible (laughs) relationship. Uh, And I'm the same way. Like when I have others doing design work for me, whether it's like website or graphics Mm -hmm. and things, I feel so bad for these people because it's an impossible relationship that we're going to have. (laughs) I know better, right? So, uh, no, it's been been a a pleasure. You've been a terrific client. Thank you. Yeah. And we've got some, you know, unique challenges on that project in every aspect that you can find challenges. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a matter of trying to manage them in order so that we can find success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My point of sharing that is just that that's how highly I think of you and appreciate your work. So Um, I appreciate you. Thank you. I guess that kind of sums up our, our show today, though. I did yeah. want to do a couple of rapid fire, though. I just want to know, because he's yeah, so sure. into music. Oh, okay. oh yeah, I have yeah, to yeah. Know, Like, what's on the podcast right now? Mm-hmm. What's in the car? What are you listening to? What's your playlist? <laughs> <laughs> You'd be ashamed that as much as I love music, mostly what I listen to in the car is Howard Stern. Mm. Yeah. So, or, or, you know, uh, audiobooks and things like that. But okay. when I do listen to music, Beethoven is a favorite. Okay. Again, because I think that there is such intent with what he did when he composed a piece of music and the struggle that that artist had to bring things into being is really evident in the resolution Mm -hmm. of the music. And when you can see the struggle and appreciate how it invested ingredients and quality into the outcome, I think that's really amazing. I mean, Beethoven did nine symphonies. Mozart did Mm -hmm. 49. Handel or Haydn did, you know, 249. I'm wrong on these numbers. Forgive me for those of you listening. And I know I got that wrong. But the point was, 
there were so many more done by so many other artists, it was facile for them. Mm-hmm. For Beethoven, it was not. He struggled. But the outcome of that struggle is absolute pure beauty. And so I find that to be really fascinating. The intent and the struggle equals an incredible outcome. So he's a favorite to listen to for sure. Okay. So favorite music, favorite color? White. Not a color, sorry, but (laughs) (laughs) it's an easy one. I know every every architect's supposed to say black, but uh, yeah, I'll go with white. Food? Mm -hmm. Ooh. A good steak. Mm. Mm -hmm. Favorite state that you've traveled to so far? Favorite state that I've traveled to. I know you're trying to hit all 50. Yep. Maine is uh, high on that list. I'd say I'd have to go with Maine right now. Really? Talk about just absolute stunning beauty. And such an otherworldly environment to what my background as a Southern California boy is, right? Mm -hmm. You couldn't find anything a little that's more opposite than Southern California than Maine. But the natural beauty there and the coastline and all of just the little bits and pieces, the tactile quality that make that state so unique, really was a lasting impression. Wine or whiskey? Whiskey. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Have to be whiskey. Gotta be. (laughs) Scotch whiskey, bourbon whiskey, anything, anything brown is going Mm -hmm. down. On the rocks or neat? On the rocks. On the rocks. Yeah. Good I mean, I will drink it neat. If it's a new one that I've never tasted before, I'll drink it yeah, neat yeah, so yeah. you can kind of get the flavor get profile. But mm. I prefer a little bit of rocks and about maybe five minutes in when there's a little bit of water that's melted in, there's a spot where that just becomes, again, yeah. that aesthetic arrest. It's a transcendent moment. <laughs> the whiskey and the water have combined and it's remarkable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Favorite movie? I like movies by... Wes Anderson and mm-hmm. the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. I don't have a favorite per se. That makes sense. But I like those <laughs> films. Maybe, you know what's one absolute favorite? Airplane. Mm-hmm. Loved that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Irreverent humor. <laughs> and what books on your nightstand right now? Uh, I'm reading a book by Neil Gaiman. It's a series of short stories. I'm reading it with my sons. And he's a really interesting writer because he's able to create worlds that instantly suck you in. He has incredible facility with his words and his prose. And then the way he weaves them together in environments, it makes you want to, you know, read the next page. So I found his to be a lot of fun and I would never have read his work if it weren't for having younger kids. Mm -hmm. You know, he's written some children's or more children oriented books, but he's really quite a sophisticated writer. Mm. Awesome. We'll have that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate it. This has been awesome. Well, let's do it again sometime. We will. All right. We will. We can talk more about whiskey. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, next time we'll do it later in the day and have some whiskey. And have some whiskey. That'll be even better. (laughs) All right, you guys. Thank you. Thank you, Anders. Appreciate your time. 